Okay, you can go ahead and be finding your way to Acts chapter number four. Acts chapter number four. And uh, while you're turning, we'll go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessings on the services today. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We do thank you for uh, this opportunity that we have to be in church. And Lord, we, we thank you for the fellowship that we have one with another, Lord. And we appreciate our church family and the way that you bring people together, Lord. And Lord, we're glad we're able to, to laugh and to joke around a little bit, Lord. But we just pray now as we uh, turn toward your word that we can uh, draw our minds, our attention to it, focus on it a little bit this morning. And Lord, to learn from it, to grow from it, I just pray that you would open our understanding, Lord. I just pray that you guide me in the things that I say, that they would be needful and helpful and accurate, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you would please be with each person here, that they would uh, glean from the service exactly that which they need. Be with those who uh, aren't able to be with us today. I know we've got some working and things. Be with those who are still on their way out this morning. And Lord, be with the class next door as well. And Lord, we just pray that you'd just help us as a church, Lord, to be a light and a witness in this place that you've planted us out, Lord. And Lord, we do praise you and we thank you for all that you do, Lord. We thank you for who you are, Lord. And we do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter number four is where we're going to be at. And last week we were uh, looking at uh, uh, Peter's message to the people after he had uh, healed the, the lame man at the beautiful gate. And everybody was... Uh, drawn to that, of course, as you would expect with a miracle of that magnitude being done, people were wanting answers. They were wanting to know what in the world was going on. And so Peter used the opportunity not to exalt himself, not to exalt the miracle that was performed, but he used the opportunity to point people to Jesus and to preach the gospel. And we find that each time that the disciples speak, each time the apostles speak, that they are careful to give God the glory and that they are always careful to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed. And that is their number one priority, that God is glorified and the gospel is proclaimed. And it is a caution to us because we can get uh, sidetracked on so many other things. We can get distracted away from our main priorities and we start making uh, our Christianity, our church and different things about uh, less important things. Okay, there's plenty of churches that exist today, but they no, no longer uh, exalt Christ. They no longer preach the gospel. They've become, in a way, they've become social clubs or they have become uh, uh, charitable organizations performing good works and doing great things, but they have left off their first love and they have left off their first responsibility. And so we have to guard against that and know that our responsibility is not uh, to better the world that we live in. It's not to uh, glorify self. It's not to uh, uh, do all these other things, although they may be commendable. And if we can make the world a better place, we should. But it's not our main priority. Our main priority is to exalt God, exalt Christ, and to preach the gospel, to make the gospel known to all men, so that they may know that they can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if anyone could get sidetracked, if anyone could exalt self, it would have been the apostles, right? And people are still worshiping the apostles to this day. Uh, go around uh, the country and see how many uh, 
how many buildings are named after apostles, disciples, and different people down throughout the ages and see how many people are exalting and worshiping and praying through Saint so-and-so. And instead, they were constantly careful to deflect any kind of praise from themselves to God. And we see the results of that is that multitudes were getting saved and God was glorified, right? And so whenever we get sidetracked, whenever we lose the plot, if you will, uh, we're really, we're spinning our wheels. We're not getting anywhere. We're not going to see anything happening because we have lost our focus. And so we finished last week with uh, Peter and John standing before uh, the religious leaders, before Pilate, or not Pilate, excuse me, before uh, the Pharisees and the priests and whatnot. And they were charging Peter to no more speak in the name of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had come before them and he didn't pull any punches. He says before them, thou art the man. You are the ones who crucified the Son of God. You're the ones that killed the Savior that God has sent into this world. You are guilty. But then at the same time, he preached the gospel and says, though you are guilty, God is offering up forgiveness. He is offering up salvation. And so I don't believe in any of these times as Peter is standing or as the other apostles are standing before their civic leaders that they are in any way haughty or arrogant condescending or abusive or abrasive, but instead they are speaking to them in love and in concern. They must hold firm. They must have uh, a spine of steel, if you will. But at the same time, they are uh, desiring that these men would know Christ. And I think this is, I think this speaks volumes because these very men that Peter is standing before are the ones that he was afraid of and denied Jesus. They are the ones that were responsible for killing Jesus. And in many senses, we would look at it. Uh, Peter spent somewhere around three years following Jesus all over the desert, all over the wilderness, uh, from city to city. Uh, he saw Jesus as his hero, as his friend, right? Mm-hmm. Almost as a brother, if you would. That might be hard for us to imagine, but, I mean, they had that kind of camaraderie. They spent time together, and then these men that he's standing before are the ones responsible for Jesus' death. And so if you were in Peter's position, what would your attitude toward them be? I hope you all go to hell, right? Just to put it bluntly, wouldn't that be your attitude? You just killed my best friend. You were responsible for slaying my hero, You did this to someone who was as good as what Jesus was. I hope that you die in your sins. And I hope you, wouldn't that be our attitude toward them? You would have no love toward that person. These would be someone that you would look at uh, in similar fashion to a murderer or Adolf Hitler, right? But we see that Peter stands before them. He is respectful. He is firm. And he extends to them God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. And that's incredible, but that's also informative toward us. And so as we finished up last week, we were looking at how Peter defied the authority, and we just kind of barely touched on it. So this week, I think it's necessary for us to uh, get into this just a little bit more about what it's like whenever we are in a world that is not accepting of Christ, 
whenever we're in a world that is contrary and in conflict with what we believe, how do we as Christians respond to it? And I think this is necessary because we have seen Christianity become less and less mainstream. Uh, in past generations, Christianity was applauded or at least accepted or acknowledged, but now it is attacked. Right. Uh, we find that that approval and acceptance, that privileged position, is gone. I mean, in most places, it is gone. You don't have that advantage as being a Christian. And there's not a respect that follows it. But instead, usually people, whenever they take a stand for Christ, whenever they uh, out themselves as a Christian, they are opening themselves to criticism and even uh, maybe a little bit of uh, reviling or mockery, right? And for us as being human beings, we don't like criticism. We don't like rejection. We don't like reviling. We don't like mockery. And so how do we respond in our flesh when that kind of thing happens? Anyone want to be honest and say? Anger, disgust. Okay. And we are reactionary creatures, right? We want to lash out. We want to defend. We may get fearful depending on our temperament, our mentality. We get fearful. We may be tempted to back off, to be quiet, to bend, to cower. There's all kinds of things, right? But for us here today, we represent the God of heaven. We represent Jesus Christ. We represent someone greater than ourselves and we've been given a privileged position as being children of God and ambassadors of Christ to represent him in the world that we live in. And so as representatives of Christ, we no longer are representing ourselves. We are no longer standing for ourselves, but we are standing for him. And so we have a responsibility to represent him well, to represent him accurately, right? And... Uh, let's go ahead and let's read in Acts chapter number 4 before I get too ahead of myself. We're going to begin down in verse number 13. Peter has already addressed the Sanhedrin. We won't read that again, but he, he already addressed them there. He told them in verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's extending the gospel to these men who crucified Jesus. So verse 13 says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we uh, do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, 
judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them, because the people, uh, because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above forty years old, on whom the this miracle of healing was shown. And so, as we look at this passage, there is a command that goes out from their religious leaders, and we've got to understand the way that things were at that time in that context that the religious leaders were also political leaders. They weren't just the, the church elders, the church leaders, or something like that, but they were the government of the people. Okay, You had the Romans that were over the Jews, but as far as the Jews go, this was the height of their government. This was the top leaders. This was their Supreme Court. Okay, And so whenever they were standing before these men, these leaders of their country issued them a command, a decree, but that decree violated a decree that was given by Jesus himself. And so there was a conflict of authorities that took place. They had two different authorities over them, and the two different authorities were at odds with one another. They were uh, contrary one to another. And so Peter and John and the rest of the apostles had to make a decision. Who do we obey? Who do we listen to? And they chose to obey the greater authority. They chose to obey God rather than men, right? And so as we look at this passage, a lot of people will take this passage and use it to justify a lot of ungodly <coughs> behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And they will look at the secular authorities. We're no longer under the Jewish system. We're no longer under priests and uh, Pharisees and all of those guys. But instead, we have secular governments over us. And people will look at the fact that we don't have a godly or a religious leadership, that we have, in essence, pagans that are ruling over us. And we feel as if, as Christians, that we have little obligation to give respect or credence to the authorities that are over us. Is that fairly accurate? And so people will say the governments are unjust, they are corrupt, and therefore we can kind of pick and choose what we want to obey and what we want to follow. Uh, and there are uh, groups within Christianity, uh, sects, if you will, amongst Christianity, that almost feel as if they are above the law, that because they have the, the moral high ground, that they get to call the shots, if you will. They get to determine what they will and will not follow. But we don't find that that is the teaching of Scripture. We don't find that that is the practice of the early church and the first century uh, leaders during that time. And so we look at this, and we need to have a godly perspective in dealing with our conflicting authorities, especially as that's going to become more and more prevalent in the days that are to come. Within our lifetime, we are going to see increased animosity toward the things of God. We're going to see increased conflict, and whenever we decide to take a godly stand, when we decide to say that we are going to follow the Bible rather than the dictates of men, we are going to find more and more conflict, and how are we going to react to that conflict? And I believe something that's important for us is to decide to determine ahead of time how we're going to respond. 
we shouldn't be reactionary, right? Uh, I've used this example before, but if as a parent, I am a reactionary parent, I wait until my child disbehaves and they push me to the limit and then I react, I respond, and I do it with emotion, with anger, with whatever, then I am going to most likely abuse that child, right? I'm going to respond in the wrong way. And so we need to be, uh, instead, we need to be uh, thought out, planning ahead of time, understanding our course of action, so that whenever the time comes, we're going to approach things from the proper way, right? And so for us as Christians, we need to have an understanding of what was it that Jesus taught, what was it the apostles practiced, how did they handle this? Because let me tell you this, uh, they did not have a better situation than what we did. They have a worse one. They did not have a less corrupt government in charge than what we do today. Right? Because we can look at it and say, but they don't understand what we're up against. They weren't dealing with what we're dealing with. They were dealing with Nero. Right? Whenever Paul was writing, we're going to look here in just a minute in Romans chapter 13, when Paul was writing to the Romans, uh, it was men like Nero who was in charge, the one who took Christians and dipped them in wax and oil and hung them up in his gardens to light the gardens up, set them on fire, burnt them alive to light his gardens. Okay? Nice guy, right? That was the type of government, that was the type of leadership that they had at that time. It was extremely oppressive. It was very pagan. Uh, there was times that the Roman government tried to force Christians to recant, tried to force Christians to worship the Roman uh, leaders, the Roman Caesars and emperors, and tried to cause them to worship at the Roman uh, temples and such. And so there was plenty of pressure against the Christians at that time to take a stand. And so for us to think that in some way that they had it better than we do or that we have a tougher lot than they did, we are highly mistaken. And so we can criticize Paul whenever he says to submit ourselves to those who are in authority. But Paul, you don't understand. These guys are mean. Okay, well, Paul ended up being killed by those guys that he was talking about, right? Everybody still with me? Mm -hmm. And so for us as Christians, it doesn't set well with our flesh. It doesn't set well with our ego and our pride to respond the way that the Bible prescribes. Because as I was thinking on this, our desire, our mindset, I think typically, I can't speak on behalf of everyone, is we desire for it to be like the Old Testament. We desire for it to be like it was with Israel. Okay, And we try to equate ourselves to Israel as if we have some sort of a mandate, as if somehow we have uh, possession or ownership of this place, and somehow we are able to enforce godly principles on the world that we live in. Right? We look at Israel and say, hey, they were able to go before Pharaoh, command that Pharaoh lets the people go, and then God unleashed all hell on Egypt so that Pharaoh would let the people go, and they marched out, plundering the Egyptians as they go. We're like, hey, we want to do that, right? They marched into the promised land, and they got out their swords, and they started chopping off heads. They started marching around cities and the walls falling down, and we're like, yeah, Lord, let's do that. 
Isn't that what we'd like? We'd like to take over. We would like to be in charge. We would like for the government to operate by Christian principles. We would like to see the, the church ruling and reigning down here, but that is not God's plan. We are not Israel, and this isn't the promised land. Y'all realize that? See, we have a promised land, and one day our Moses, Jesus Christ, is going to come down, and he's going to shut us, or strip us out of this Egypt by his power, and he is going to take us to that promised land where he will rule and reign with godly principles. But until then, we are still slaves in Egypt, right? And so we're placing ourselves at the wrong place in God's plan. And so we're not going and stomping all over the Philistines and uh, all of the Canaanites, but instead we are still under ungodly authorities. And so how do we respond? How do we react to that? And so I've written down just a, a list of thoughts here to get us kind of going in the right direction. Whenever we are under ungodly and oppressive authority, it does not mean that the power of the earthly authority is nullified because it's ungodly. We can't just cast it aside and disrespect it and say, oh, that holds nothing over me because they don't serve my God, right? It doesn't mean that we can pick and choose what we obey and what we don't obey because as long as it does not go against God's word, as long as it does not violate his commandments or keep us from, uh, from following his commandments, we are commanded by God to obey those authorities, right? Uh, doesn't mean that we can force biblical positions on an ungodly world. You cannot legislate morality. And as I've said before, God does not have us here to make the world a better place from which to go to hell. Right? That's not our place. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can expect special treatment just because we are Christians and we are God's people. We can tout the fact that for generations in Europe and in America that there has been religious liberty, right? Now, it's only been a recent thing that there was religious liberty because you go back just a couple hundred years and there definitely wasn't within Ireland. There wasn't throughout Europe. There wasn't religious liberty. That's a, a fairly new thing, but we take it for granted today. And so we, we can go to the courts and we can stand and protest and we can do all these things and say, you're violating my religious freedoms. Uh, in reality, you don't have any, right? They're only there if the government allows you to have those. And whenever you no longer have those, guess what? They are still the government. Uh, so we can't expect special treatment. We aren't guaranteed to escape persecution. Oh, because I'm a Christian, God's going to keep me from all of these things. Uh, it didn't keep Daniel out of the lion's den. didn't keep the three Hebrews out of the fire. It didn't keep uh, Paul from being executed, Peter from being crucified upside down, John the Baptist from being beheaded, and countless other martyrs down throughout time that said, I cannot violate scripture and my conscience to serve an ungodly authority. And so they lost their lives as a result of it, right? So we can't expect just because we're Christians that we uh, escape persecution. And it doesn't mean that we can act disrespectful and arrogant because of our position. Okay? 
And my thoughts on that, if you look, coming from an American point of view, I've watched where Christianity has been mainstream and protected and accepted for many generations. And now whenever it is no longer getting that privileged position that Christians are taken aback by it and they are becoming aggressive and angry and militant and rebellious because they no longer enjoy those privileges they once had. Right? Very much so. And honestly, as I was studying this out, I couldn't I couldn't get away from that although I tried to. While his belief and his position may be right, his disposition is not. Okay? And while the Bible does teach that those things are an abomination, while the Bible does teach that God has created man and woman, right? He has assigned their genders. There is no such thing as being able to change your gender. All of those things, even though those may be nonsense, it does not give us the right as a Christian to stand up hatefully, rebelliously against a secular and an ungodly society and demand that they take up a godly position. Because here's the fact of the matter. We cannot expect the ungodly to behave godly. We cannot expect sinners to legislate and behave in a holy manner, right? And so what that leaves us to do is we are navigating a lost and ungodly world as God's people. And so we'll get into a a few principles and a few scriptures here to back up what we're saying and to give light on the way that we should be handling things. Because as, and I, I hate to bring this out, okay, but as we've watched this whole saga and this lunacy with Enoch Burke unfold, I have said many times that I don't think that he's handling it correctly. And so that drives me to look in Scripture and say, what is the correct way to handle it? I don't want to just be the armchair quarterback. I don't want to be the backseat driver, uh, you know, narrating somebody else's case. I want to be looking at it and saying, okay, what does the Bible say that I should be doing? If this was to happen to me, how do I respond and what are my priorities? Uh, maybe that's something that would be good for us to to think about for just a moment uh, so that we don't lose the plot, so that we don't get uh, sidetracked off of the main things. Whenever these type of situations arise, whenever you are made to choose whom you will serve, whom you will follow, what is our first considerations? What is our priority in those circumstances? Okay, that's our first resource. We should be looking to the scriptures. What is our priority? What are we wanting to see happen? What are we wanting to see accomplished? In human way, favor. What's what will favor myself in this okay. situation? Okay, so you are taking two different directions on this, but this is good. Okay, so in our flesh, we're wanting favor. 
we are wanting to win the case. We are wanting to have our voices heard. We are wanting to have uh, freedom, preference. We want to win, right? But what should be, as Christians, what should be our goal, and that's what Jennifer is getting at, we want God to be glorified, right? We want him, we want to represent him well, right? We want Christ to shine in the way that we conduct ourselves and the things that we say and the things that we do. And we want the lost to be reached for Christ, not pushed away or alienated from him, right? Yeah. And so there is where the problem exists is because we have a spiritual goal, a spiritual uh, responsibility, if you will. But at the same time, we dwell in flesh that has its own desires and its own goals, right? I think if you go about it the right way, you tend to put Christ on ultimate priority. Yeah. Then it And so it is a secondary outcome instead of a primary goal, right? And so you handle yourself in a godly way. God can work things together and he can bring about uh, favor in the eyes of men. He can bring about uh, a furtherance of the gospel, but it's not going to be done through the works of the flesh. It's not going to be done through pride and arrogance and self-will and uh, defiance and all these things, but instead... Whenever we look at this passage that we've just read here in Acts, uh, the conduct that they had, they had a boldness. That's not an abrasiveness, it's a boldness. They had a confidence, okay? And we have to be careful to differentiate between those. Because whenever we see boldness, we think of someone who is in your face and arrogant and raging. That's not boldness. And that's usually fueled by pride and the lack of confidence, Okay, because they're having to prove themselves. The Bible has a word, meekness. Okay, meekness is not what we often define it as or what we think of it as being. Uh, meekness in a biblical sense, well, the way we normally think of meekness, we think of it as being weak and being some limp-wristed weenie, right? But that is not what meekness means. Moses was meek and Jesus was meek above all, right? Was Jesus weak? Was he some kind of a wishy-washy, limp-wristed wiener? No, he wasn't. But what meekness is, it is a confidence, it is a security in the power in which you're trusting, okay? Uh, an example that I, I, I like to give of what meekness is uh, is if you look at dogs, for instance, okay? You look at something like a Doberman or a Rottweiler. Do they have to uh, 
instill fear? Do they have to growl and bark and raise a big fuss for you to respect them? They know their abilities. They know the power that they have. And so they don't have to be loud and rowdy and obnoxious. What are some of the noisiest, most obnoxious dogs? The chihuahuas. The chihuahuas. The chihuahuas. So the Rottweiler, the uh, the Doberman, they would be a picture of meekness. They have power restrained. Yeah. They know what they have. They know the strength that they have, and they don't have to make a show of it. It's the noisy ones that don't have anything to back it up. They have nothing to be... And so they have to make themselves appear to be more than what they are. Is that a good example? Okay. And so for us as Christians, our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our flesh. It's not in our intelligence. It's not in our abilities. Our confidence is in God. Our confidence is in Christ. And so we don't have to be noisy. We don't have to be uh, like that chihuahua yapping and nipping and biting and fussing because we have God on our side and in our corner and we can put our faith and our trust in him. I was looking at a uh, just kind of a, a little inspirational like story this past week, and it was talking about a, a man and his daughter back before the days of cars. And he asked his daughter, he says, "Do you hear that?" She says, "Yeah, I hear that." He says, "What is it?" He said, or she says, "Well, it's a wagon." He says, "You're right." And he says, "And it's empty." She says, "Well, Dad, how can you tell that just by the sound? You haven't even seen it yet." And he says, "I can tell by the noise that it's making." that an empty wagon makes a lot more noise, right? If it was loaded down, if it had some substance to it, something to it, it'd be a lot quieter, right? There's a lot of empty wagons in our, our day and time. Mm-hmm. People making a lot of noise have no substance, yeah. okay? And so for us as Christians, if we have confidence in our God, if we have confidence in our position and in what we believe, we shouldn't have to make such a noise and a fuss about it because if we are standing on the truth, the truth will speak for itself, right? right. And so as we look at this, let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13. I want to get some scripture in here. As you're turning, I was talking about Peter and his uh, run-in with these religious leaders and what they looked at. They said, he's bold. He's got confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Confidence not in himself, not in abrasiveness, not in arrogance. But not only was he bold, says they took, they took note that they had been with Jesus. They said, we can tell that this is not of himself, that his power, his boldness comes from Christ. And not only that, they looked at his works, not just his demeanor, but they looked at his works and they said the things that he is doing, this healing of this impotent man is notably a good work and everyone is glorifying God because of it. So there's no way that we can say anything against it. So they said the way that he is conducting himself and the things that he is doing is in line with Christ and is glorifying God, and so we're not able to say anything against it, even though they were ungodly, even though they were the ones who crucified Jesus himself, 
because of their demeanor, their conduct, their attitude, their works, they were unable to say anything against it. They were able to bully them. They were able to threaten them. But in the end, their hands were tied, right? What would have happened if Peter would have came in there and lashed into them, made a big fuss, pulled an Enoch Burke? He probably would have been on the next cross, right? He'd been on the next cross. He'd say, oh, look, I'm a martyr for Christ. Are you're a martyr to stupidity. But anyway, um, sorry. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse number 1. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For And by the way, as it says damnation there, it's not saying that they resisted the government, so they're going to hell. It's saying that they are going to receive consequences. They're going to receive judgment at a civil level, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That's definitely what that means. Okay. Um, verse number three. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the or excuse me, he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore he must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For 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 this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let me remind you again, Paul is writing this to the Romans as they are under the control of the Roman government as men such as Nero and Herod and Pilate are in places of authority. And so he says to them, be subject to them, render to them honor, follow them because they they wield not the sword in vain, if you will. And so as we look at this, there are legal avenues that we can go through. There, are, Even whenever we are at odds with the government, there are legal ways that we can uh, object and that we can raise. But at the end, we follow the, the edicts, the laws of the government until they go against what the Bible teaches. And for the most part, the government and the Bible are going to uh, are going to be compatible, right? For the most part, we're not always going to like their policies. We're not always going to like what they fund and where they spend their money and the projects they finance and these kind of things. We're not always going to like the laws, but for the most part, they are not going to be laws that force us to do anything unbiblical or ungodly. There's no laws that have been commanded that make you bow down to Baal. There's no laws that's been passed that demand that you must sacrifice your children to Molech. And for the most part, there's not laws that restrict your freedom to worship God, to go to church, or even to evangelize and to speak his name in public. Right? Now you go to countries such as China, 
And there are laws that are in place that do go against Scripture. The Chinese aren't allowed to meet together for worship. But the Bible says clearly that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So what do the Chinese do? They secretly, quietly meet together in fear of the government because the government has power to render damnation, right? And so they meet quietly and secretly saying, you may command that we don't meet together. The Bible says that we do. So we're going to meet together. And they do so at the risk of their own lives. Okay? And so in the question that I asked earlier, what do we seek? We don't seek our comfort. We don't seek to impress our views and our way of doing things upon others. But instead, we seek to serve God according to his word. And as long as we can serve God according to his word, we peacefully abide by all dictates of the law and the government. And whenever they pass laws that go against that, that violate God's word and try to coerce us or get us to go against God's word, then those ones only, we choose to obey God rather than men, knowing that there can be consequences, trusting God, and uh, basically allowing him to determine what the outcome is going to be, accepting the fact that we may pay a price for following God rather than men. Whenever Peter made this statement, whether we should obey God or men, you decide. That's essentially what he said. What was Peter expecting to happen? Any idea what you, what you think he was expecting to happen? Peter. When he made this statement, bold statement, saying, I'm going to obey God rather than you. They were expecting, yeah, they were expecting punishment. They were expecting death, probably, because these are the very same people who killed Jesus, right? And so he's standing before them. He's like, yep, the next cross has got my name on it. But he had a boldness, and he says, I'm going to trust God, even if it takes me to a cross, right? And so that was his expectation, and God didn't make it a reality immediately. He would eventually embrace his cross, right? But for us to think that somehow we deserve comfort and uh, great liberties and freedoms and no issues with our government, uh, we are ignorant of the Bible and of history, right? Because whenever we choose to take a stand against an ungodly government, it's not us going to them and demanding they see things our way. It's us obeying God rather than men and letting the chips fall where they may, knowing that God is in charge. Right? It's not demanding that society be welcoming and accepting of Christians and Christian practices, but instead it is obeying God rather than men. That's an individual that is a personal level, right? So it may come to the point in time for us as Christians where maybe the Irish government says that we can't meet together. We're going to meet together anyway. We did that a little bit during COVID, right? <laughs> At the beginning of that, we said, okay, they have a point. There, there may be an issue here. There may be a reason for us to refrain for a time, but it got to the place where they were allowing everybody but churches to meet together, and we said this is a uh, 
a principle from God's word, we need to meet together even if they say we can't. We did anyway, right? But we didn't do it unadvisably, and we realized that there could be repercussions, right? But anyway, that's just one example and a small one. But it may come to the time where they're going to rule things that the Scripture says as hate speech. Do we stay away from them then? Do we take a pen knife and cut those parts out of our Scriptures? No. But on the other hand, are we abrasive and hateful about it, trying to force that on other people and trying to make ourselves a martyr and trying to stir up problems where there isn't one? No. No. Um, okay, so Romans chapter 13 tells us to be subject to those authority. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, I won't turn there for sake of time, but it's a familiar passage of Scripture. They're asking Jesus about paying tribute, and he asks for them to show him a piece of money, and he says... Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and unto God that which is God's, right? And so that makes it pretty clear for us, just that principle in itself, that there are two different realms of authority, right? Mm -hmm. And generally those two realms of authority are compatible. And the place that we run into trouble is where Caesar demands that we render to him what God says render to him, right? Whenever that authority violates its jurisdiction, if you will, that is where you've got a problem. If we take it to a, a secular example here, um, what if the, the town parking warden, he's got some authority, right? What if he gives you commands and the guardian gives you demands that are contrary to what the parking warden has told you? Which one do you listen to? The guards, the guards have a greater authority, right? And so with this, we find that we render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, unto God that which is God's. And so as long as they stay in their lane, and I'm not saying God has to stay in his lane, everything's his lane. But he has defined his role and he has defined what his authority is. And as long as they don't overstep their bound, as long as they don't violate God's authority, then we... Submit to them. We render under Caesar, unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? It gives us a different idea toward government. It tells us to pray for those who are in authority over us. Uh, a couple of thoughts here. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says that our conversation is in heaven. A conversation, that is our manner of life, basically our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? In Ephesians 2.19, it tells us that we are fellow citizens with the saints. Once again, our citizenship is in the heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. And so what those three passages together tell us is that this world isn't our home. This isn't where we are a citizen of. For right now, we are just visiting this place. We're going to find here in a minute we are pilgrims and strangers here. And so... Katie and Kev and the family just went to Morocco not too long ago. Morocco has laws that are diverse from Ireland's, right? And so while you were in Morocco, you did what you could to keep the laws of Morocco. Yeah, to respect their culture, their country, their authority, to uh, be well seen amongst that community, right? Now, that did not cause you to renounce your Irish or... Uh, your South African nationalities, heritages, all that, right? Okay? 
And if they demanded things of you while you were in Morocco, that would have violated your place as Irish citizens. You would have had to draw a line, right? Uh, I've told you about our, our, our friend and fellow missionary, Scott Hall. He's passed away now, but he served in Kenya for years. And he raised his children in Kenya. And whenever they got to be, uh, his boys got to be 18 years old, they had to leave Kenya. The reason being the laws in Kenya stated that all, all boys, all males of 18 years old had to do uh, mandatory service within the Kenyan military. Okay? So if they would have stayed in Kenya, his boys would have had to participate in the Kenyan military. But as American citizens, in order for them to participate in the military of another country, they would have to renounce their American citizenship. Okay? So if they would have stayed in Kenya, they would have lost their American citizenship because of the laws of Kenya. And so they chose not to abide by those, and instead they left it. Right? So for us as Christians, we are here. We are citizens of heaven. We are uh, pilgrims and strangers here. We are seeking uh, uh, another land, another kingdom. But while we are here, we respect, we abide by the laws of the nation where we are visiting, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? As long as it does not violate the principles and the laws of the kingdom of our citizenship, right? Yeah. Uh, in the idea of an ambassador, an ambassador is someone who is sent on behalf of one country or one government to another country as a representative, right? Mm -hmm. And they are representing the country, the government, the leaders that has sent them. And they have an obligation to abide by the laws of the country that they are going to but they must still remain loyal to the one that sent them. Is everybody still following me here? Yeah. And so this gives us a principle for us as Christians and how we live as God's people in an ungodly land. This gives us a principle for whenever our authorities uh, are in conflict one with the other. Right. And so First uh, Peter chapter number 2. I'll remind you of the, the times which Peter was writing in, uh, same as Paul. They were in hostile situations. They were in conflicts of authority. 1 Peter chapter 2. Really, I could read most of the chapter, but I won't for sake of time and for putting you all to sleep. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 11 he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, or unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, 
but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so that is Peter's advice, his command, his decree to the believers at that time. He tells them that they are pilgrims and strangers here. They are representatives of the God that has sent them. And they are to live and to walk in such a way as to bring glory to God so that those who are observing them will see God working in their lives and will come to the place where they praise and they glorify God and hopefully the place where they are saved, right? He doesn't say that you are an invading army, that you are to come in as a bull in a china shop and wreck everything. He doesn't say that you are right and they are wrong and you come with a place of arrogance, forcing your beliefs upon them. Instead, he says that you are going to conduct yourselves in a way that they can see your Lord working in you, where you are as a representative of him in this world, so that in the end, it is going to turn their eyes and their vision toward the God that you serve. Okay? Colossians chapter 4. Just almost done, okay? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 4. In verse number 5. It says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Okay? When it's talking about those who are without, those who don't know Christ. Walk in wisdom toward them. So we are to be paying attention, walking circumspectly, always conscious of how our actions, our words, the way that we are living, the way that we are walking, how that is going to affect those who don't know Christ, okay? Because our goal, our desire is that they may know him. So verse five, walk in wisdom toward them who are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. In our current context, we've kind of changed the meaning of words. And now what does it mean to be salty? confrontational tiki right bitter yeah salty which is really weird because salt actually takes away bitterness do you all know that if you have really bitter coffee put a pinch of salt in it takes it away you got bitter food put a little bit of salt on it takes it away but now to be salty you're bitter that's messed up isn't it but whenever it says here let your speech be always seasoned with grace or be always with grace, seasoned with salt. And so salt causes things to taste better. It takes away the sharpness, the bitterness, right? As does grace. And so whenever we are dealing with people who don't believe what we believe, whenever we are in places where people are hostile, whenever there is conflict of authority, We need to be mindful of who we represent, right? And how we present ourselves because we are standing here as the body of Christ. We are standing here as his 
representatives. And our goal is not to win arguments, it's to win souls. Our goal is not to be heard, but for Christ to be seen, right? And so that changes all of it. And it doesn't mean that we just lay down and let everybody run us over. It's that we, with meekness, faith, and confidence, we do what's right, even if the entire world is doing that which is wrong. We stay faithful to the God that we serve if no one else does. And by our faith, our confidence, our boldness, they see God working in us. Mm -hmm. They have, if nothing else, respect for the way that we conduct ourselves. And through that, it's going to have an impact for the cause of Christ. Now, in a secondary sense on this, I said we don't have to be passive about it, right? doesn't mean that we are weak. And it doesn't mean that we can't seek for the governments to conduct themselves in a godly way, but we must do it the right way, the legal way, go through the right avenues. So by all means, vote. Write letters, write emails. Make your position heard to representatives, right? But it doesn't mean that we're going to be you know, bombing abortion clinics and putting car bombs in front of the doll and right? That's not what God's telling us to do. <laughs> this is being recorded, put them on by the way. Oh, no. <laughs> but in our flesh, that's what we would desire to do, right? But he didn't send us to be terrorists. He sent us to be testimonies. All right. Exactly right. Right? Yeah. And one day he's going to come and he's going to set all things right. There will be uh, great stars fall from heaven. There will be explosions, but it's going to be him doing it, not us. Right. But until then... We observe the examples that we find in Scripture of Daniel standing resolutely, saying, I am going to do what God has told me to do, even if you throw me in the lion's den. Mm -hmm. The three Hebrews saying, God is able to deliver me, but even or not, be it known unto you, O king, we will not bow down. Mm -hmm. Peter standing before these men saying, Jesus has given me a commandment, that supersedes yours, I'm going to obey him instead of you, right? Mm -hmm. Paul and Silas later on being beaten and thrown in prison and glorifying God that they were counted counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, right? I'm not saying that we need to seek suffering, but that we need to stand boldly regardless. And so with all of this being said, I'm going to have to wrap it up. Does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at today? One thing I will say, our our focus is, hold on to your thought, whoever's going to speak. But our focus has kind of been toward that of government. I'd say the one that we're going to run into most often is going to be our employers, our people that are within our family, our friend group, the people around us are going to be 
uh, pressuring us to take stands that are contrary to the Word of God, and we are going to re- we are going to uh, stand in in danger of losing employment, uh, losing relationships, losing friendships because we take a godly stand. That's going to probably be what we're going to have to worry about long before we ever face prison. Right. You're going to be at work, and they're going to say, "Well, what do you think about this latest?" Uh, political narrative, be it transgenderism or whatever it is, and you're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to bend? Are you going to bow? Are you going to try to duck it? Or are you going to be straight with it and speak the truth in love? Right? Doesn't mean that you have to be going looking for a fight, go to your employer and say, this is what I believe. Well, hey, I never even asked you about that, but since you said it, right? Okay, who was going to say something over here? (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. It's me. Well, while she's trying to get her train back on thought, does it or back on track? Does <laughs> anyone else have anything this morning? Did you get back on track yet? No. Okay. Okay, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and uh, we'll take us a break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord, and we do thank you for this time that we've been able to look at this, these principles from your word, Lord. Help us to be ever mindful that we are representing you, Lord, that we're not seeking to, uh, to win arguments, but we're seeking to win souls. And help us, Lord, to represent you well. Help us, Lord, to be... Uh, Help us to be uh, constantly aware that our citizenship is in heaven. And Lord, help us, Lord, as pilgrims and strangers here to to seek to be uh, uh, great representatives of you. Help us, Lord, to seek to see souls saved and lives changed, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you do. And we just praise you for it and ask you just to work in our hearts and our lives. Help us, Lord, to set our flesh aside and Lord set our eyes upon you. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.